love seeing the kids going to their time. Not because I'm excited to get them out of here, no. But it's, it's wonderful to see young children um, growing up, hearing the stories, hearing the good news of Jesus, being with their families, um, in the community of faith. And that's where we're at. And that's, it's a beautiful thing. The resurrection of Jesus. Um, probably the most amazing moment in the most amazing life ever lived. Would you agree? I see some nods. Yes? You know, think about Jesus. who was born in a little town of Bethlehem. Raised in a, a, an even more obscure little town called Nazareth. Uh, practiced carpentry until he was about 30 years old. And then at that point, he began a three-year ministry in and around first century Palestine. Was eventually executed. Why? For claiming to be the Messiah. That's what he was credited with. Died on the cross. They put the sign above him. The King of the Jews. The one who claimed to be the one sent from God to be Israel's king. And that's why he was put to death. Well, that would have been, um, that, that could have been the end of the story, right? Could have been the end of the story. In fact, if, if you had lived in that time in first century Palestine, you probably would have seen a lot of would-be messiahs coming and going. You would have seen a lot of people rise up and say, I'm the one who God has sent to deliver the people out of their exile from the Romans, to bring them into new life, to bring them into God's kingdom, to usher in something brand new, capturing the hearts and minds of the people. That's, that's what they would have tried to do. These wannabe messiahs each suffered the same fate. Dead, buried, and mostly forgotten. Although there are a few names that appear in the record books and the history books of, yes, this guy claimed to be Messiah, yes, this guy claimed... And that's how we know that there were Messiahs at that time trying, to, uh, uh, trying on themselves to deliver Israel. Dead, buried, and forgotten. But that wasn't the end of Jesus' story, was it? Amen? Not for Jesus. See, what happened next in Jesus' story changed everything. It changed the lives and it transformed these confused and frightened followers into bold and articulate witnesses. It established what we know today as Christianity. And it changed the world forever. Everything changed at that point. What happened that first Easter? And why does it matter to us? What difference does it make in our own lives today, almost 2,000 years later? I'm hoping I can answer some of those questions today. And so that we can leave here knowing, ah, so that's what it's about. So that's what I'm supposed to do. So that's how I'm supposed to respond. That's how I'm supposed to live. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Luke 24. If you don't, you can follow along uh, on the screen. And you can, um, you can read it there with me as I read it aloud. 
Luke chapter 24, we're going to start at the very beginning of that chapter and read for 12 verses. Well, I will read them and you will listen and and read along silently. Chapter 24 of Luke, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we look at this word today, and um, God, I, pray, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through me, and, it'll, and you'll speak directly to each and every one of us that we'll hear what you want us to hear, to understand what we should understand. And Lord, to have have a a clear direction and path when we walk out this door today, knowing what you have called us to do and called us to be for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So sometimes sometimes you have to remove... um, Remove a few layers of worthless rock, right, to get to a treasure. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're digging for treasure, if you're in a mine, I don't know. I, we, not very many of us have probably worked in mines, but I hear that's how you do it. You've got to dig in there and, and get some stuff away before you get to what's really real, what's really valuable. Um, well, that's true when you look at the, at the various theories of the resurrection. There are a lot of views about... What really happened here? What happened in the resurrection? How can we explain all of this? So before we can understand why the resurrection matters to us and really get an idea of, well, can we really trust this story that we're seeing here, that we've read here, let's look at some alternate theories about the resurrection. I want to just kind of take you through, uh, a, well, I'll take you through uh, a lot of different ideas. Um, the first one is this. Um, Jesus didn't really die. Jesus didn't really die. In fact, this, is, this was popularized quite a few years ago. It was the swoon theory, that's what, that's what they call it, that Jesus didn't really die. He only fainted or passed out or swooned on the cross and then was buried and then woke up in the tomb and went, oh, I'm still alive, and somehow managed to get out of the tomb and go about and meet his disciples. And then they said, Jesus, you rose from the dead. Amazing. It's a miracle. Well, first of all, 
there are some problems with this. Um, and I'm just, uh, let me run, a few, uh, run through a few of these. They're probably pretty obvious to you. Number one, Jesus could not have survived a crucifixion in the first century. The Romans were really good at it. They knew how to put people to death. They devised this crucifixion as an ideal method of torturing and killing people. And no one got out alive. So the, the, uh, the fact that Jesus could have survived what he went through on the cross, probably not. Secondly, the Roman soldiers were pretty sure that Jesus was dead. In fact, if we flip back in the story, you see the soldiers are looking up there going, well, this guy's, dead. Oh, this guy's not dead, let's break his legs, he'll die soon. This guy, he's not dead, let's break his legs. This guy looks like he's dead. I'm pretty sure he's dead, let's just double check. So what they do... They put the spear in his side, and blood and water came out. Signs that he had died of asphyxiation, that his lungs had collapsed. He was dead. And they knew they could be sure that Jesus was dead. The next thing is, besides, the, besides his uh, asphyxiation and the blood and water coming out that we see in the gospel accounts, the body was totally encased in winding sheets and put in a tomb. So if he hadn't died there, he would have probably died uh, of suffocation uh, during the three days that he's wrapped in these linens and sealed in a tomb. Fifthly, if the disciples uh, had actually seen Jesus come out, swoon, half dead, make it out of the tomb, get, out, get past the rocks, get past the soldiers, and actually get to them, I doubt they would have fallen down before him and worshipped him as a glorified, risen Christ. Just think about that. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who was half dead or mutilated or destroyed like that in a bodily appearance. We read that in, we read that in Psalm 22. We read that in Isaiah 53. His appearance was marred. He had no majesty about him. How, how could you worship somebody like that? Pretty, pretty unlikely. Finally, we'd have to argue that the Roman soldiers <clears throat> would, have ha would have been overpowered by this half-dead man. And that he would have had to move the stone and gotten out on his own. Unless there was some help. Well, that gets into some other theories. And finally, thinking about the, imagining the swoon theory, there's really no evidence anywhere, certainly not in the gospel accounts or anywhere else that this swooned Jesus came back to life and went about and did this and went about and did that. There are no stories of the half-dead Jesus coming out and seeing people and having other experiences. What we have in the gospel accounts is a risen Jesus meeting his disciples in a glorified but perfectly human body and going about after 40 days, meeting and greeting, eating food, saying, hey, touch my side, touch my hands, touch my feet, the, the, the holes are still there. Nobody really takes the swoon theory seriously, but just in case it comes up, <laughs> no. No, there's, there's a lot of practical and common sense evidence against it. Well, we know, because of the, the account here, we know from history that anyone who went on the cross like that died. 
We know that Jesus died. There's no debating that. Jesus died. But, were the disciples deceived about the resurrection? Were they deceived? Was there some kind of a trick played on them somehow or another that caused them to think, hey, we saw Jesus. He's alive. There are various theories here. One of, the first one is this hallucination theory that all of the disciples imagined seeing Jesus after His resurrection. There's also the vision theory that the disciples had visions, kind of spiritual rapturous visions of this risen Jesus. There's also the spirit theory that, well, Jesus did return, but He was in a spiritual form. In fact, there are some... Um, some churches out there claim to be churches, claim to be Christian, who believe this very thing. There was no bodily resurrection, but Jesus kind of appeared in a spirit form to people. There's also the wrong tomb theory that the disciples, starting with these women here, they went to the wrong tomb. And when they went to the tomb and they saw that there was, the stone was rolled away and there was no body there, well, it's because they got the wrong address. Because their, their Garmin put, put, pointed them in the wrong direction, which they're known to do. We know that. Well, I kind of doubt that was the case. And besides that, the evidence from the Gospels is that they, they went to the tomb, saw where he was buried, and then went home and prepared their spices and their ointments, rested on the Sabbath, and went back. They knew exactly where to go. They knew exactly where he was buried, and he wasn't there. Well, there's also the mistaken identity theory. That's kind of related to it. That maybe the women <clears throat> saw somebody in the garden. We saw that in John, John chapter 20. Mary, Mary sees Jesus in the garden and says, oh, it must be a gardener. Gardener. Where did you put where'd you put my Lord? He was in this tomb. She didn't recognize him. Maybe there was a mistaken maybe there was a mistaken identity. Maybe they thought it was Jesus. You know, they'd only spent just about every day of of three years with Jesus in his ministry. I'm sure that they probably would have easily mistaken somebody else for Jesus at that point. Well, there's also the stolen body theory. Read that in Matthew chapter 28. After Jesus rose from the dead, the, the Roman soldiers went back and said, uh, uh, we don't know what happened, but there was an earthquake, a blinding light. We fell paralyzed on the ground. When we woke up, the tomb was open. Jesus was gone. Yeah, we know there was a seal on there. We know we we're supposed to guard that thing, but yeah, we don't know what happened. Something crazy happened there. They said, it's okay. We'll just tell everybody that the body was stolen. That'll, 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 that'll cover everything. Well, that's fine. Except for that doesn't really account for all of his post-resurrection uh, encounters with other people, does it? Doesn't explain all of his appearances? Doesn't explain him meeting with people? How do you explain that if he actually did die and his body was stolen? There's also, bear with me, there's also a, the twin theory that Jesus actually had a twin identical brother and his identical twin brother was in hiding for years and years and years until his death. 
And then he came out and said, Oh yeah, that, I'm Jesus. Yeah, I'm Jesus. And he took on Jesus' identity, took on his Messiahship, and somehow or another did all of these other miraculous things. And then don't forget, at the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts chapter 1, he also ascended into heaven. Don't know how his twin got those powers, but it must have been a wonder twin. Um, but the problem with that is that um, the theory gives great evidence of an incredible imagination of the one who fought it up. But that's about it. There's zero evidence anywhere of that he had a twin brother. So he did have other brothers, sisters. We could, we could argue that from, from the Bible and from history. There's also the last theory uh, here uh, that, that the disciples were maybe deceived about things was the theory that's put forth um, through Islam or through the Muslim uh, through the Muslim faith that somebody else took Jesus' place on the cross. That Jesus didn't actually die on the cross at all, but avoided that and then was able to kind of go on with his life and that somebody else died in his place. They're not exactly sure who, who that is. Might have been Judas. Might have been somebody else. But that kind of goes against the whole point of Jesus' death, doesn't it? That he substituted his life for us. Not that one of us substituted our life for him. Well, you're going to, you probably hear a lot of these arguments, and a lot of very smart people believe these very theories about the resurrection. But could the disciples actually have been mistaken? Could they have, they, could they have gotten the wrong guy? Could they have worshipped the wrong person? Uh, could they have seen these hallucinations or these visions? Well, just, to, just consider the hallucinations for a second. First of all, there were way too many witnesses for it to be a, a, a hallucination. Every witness would have had to have the same exact hallucination at very similar times, at the exact same times. The other, the other fact, fact is that the witnesses that we see in the gospel accounts in the New Testament, they're good, honest, first-hand, reliable, and qualified witnesses. There's no evidence or no reason that we should disbelieve any of their arguments or any of their testimonies. In fact, just consider that at one time, Jesus appeared to 500 at a time. Well, I don't know if you know anything about hallucinations, but they don't appear... <laughs> They don't happen to 500 people all at one time. There have been reports in history of masses of people seeing a type of vision all at the same time, or what they believed was a vision, but this was no vision. This was a real, live person that they touched and met with. Hallucinations usually last a few seconds, maybe, rarely hours, and they certainly don't last for 40 days off and on hallucinating the same person, doing all kinds of different things for 40 days straight. People don't usually experience those kinds of things unless they're insane. Unless they're clinically insane. And then they may see the same hallucinations over and over and over again. But the fact that so many different people saw this over the, all those periods of time, it's hard to, hard to believe. Hallucinations usually come from within somebody. They're in, in their minds. So there are, they have, their, their thoughts are already there, maybe unconsciously, 
But Jesus' appearances were very unusual, happened outside of anybody who saw him, and were always in some surprising ways. Like, we, would, we didn't expect Jesus to be like that. We didn't expect Jesus to do that. If it was all in their minds, it would have been consistent with their own thoughts and their own backgrounds. They didn't expect the resurrection, is another thing. They didn't expect him to raise from the dead like that. They were all in hiding. They didn't realize that Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do until after the fact. And they didn't believe it at first. They didn't believe it. Let's keep going. Hallucinations don't eat. Right? Uh, you, cannot, you can't touch a hallucination. Um, th- you, you don't have conversations with a hallucination, especially in group conversations, um, and especially not over 40 days, they wouldn't have believed if they had thought, maybe we're hallucinating. They would have checked things out. They would have went to the tomb and they would have said, okay, we're just hallucinating. Here's his tomb. He's still in there. But what did they do? We see Peter rose and ran to the tomb, going in and going, is this true? It looks like it's true. Jesus isn't here. He's gone. The tomb is empty. Finally, a hallucination would have been stopped by their opponents. If there were people who were against them, they would have said, no, 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 no. You guys are hallucinating. We've got the proof right here. And it certainly wouldn't explain the empty tomb, the rolled away stone, and the fact that there was no body there. Well, Jesus died. It's hard to believe that the disciples would have been deceived about the resurrection. But but did the disciples themselves lie? Did the disciples lie about the resurrection? Was it all a hoax? Was it all a conspiracy? Well, there's the lie for profit theory that the disciples created a hoax for financial profit or some other profit. At some point, uh, though, the problem with this is that at some point, if there was a motivation for lying about the resurrection, if there was a motivation for lying about the resurrection, some disciple at some point in time would have undoubtedly confessed under pressure, under maybe a bribe, like say, hey, we'll give you more money, or we'll give you more power, or we'll give you more of whatever else that you say you're going to get, or maybe torture. Somebody would have spilled the beans at some point if it was all a big hoax. But they never did. It's never happened. Even those who denied Christ... Even those who said, okay, 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 fine. Caesar's Lord. They didn't, they didn't say it was a hoax. They just, they just switched their beliefs. They just switched, switched their allegiance. But not a, not a single one of them ever confessed that it was a lie or a hoax or a conspiracy. And what a story anyway. What kind of a story... Can you imagine somebody making a st- up a story like this? <laughs> Invented by, may- by a few fishermen and their buddies? 
a greater story than, than has ever been told by Shakespeare or maybe Tolkien or any number of great authors down through the centuries. In addition, the disciples, the disciples who were transformed from, from well, we, we said before, from fearful, from perplexed and wondering and confused to, to the fact that they, their message following the resurrection and their actions were consistent with their claims about the resurrection. Their lives were changed. It was a radical turnaround for them. In addition, what advantage did they actually have in perpetrating a hoax like that? What, what, what gain was there? When you read the account of the Gospels and you look back through history, what benefit did, did believers have for saying, Jesus rose from the dead and I'm going to follow Him and I'm going to live for Him? Death? Disownment? Family conflict? You name it. Following Christ didn't have a whole lot of benefits for those early Christians, did it? A few other things. The Jews and the Romans could easily have produced a body if it was a hoax. And then they could have written about it and they could have argued that, no, you're lying. It's just a conspiracy. It would have easily been refuted by eyewitnesses in and around Jerusalem during that time. And a conspiracy would have been unearthed by many of the, the opponents of the disciples. If it was not true, many who were opposed to the disciples in those first decades and even several hundred years would ease, could easily have dismissed it as a hoax, if it were so. Well, a lot of people are going to argue this. You're going to hear these arguments. You're going to hear... The, the conspiracy arguments. You're going to hear the hoax arguments. A lot of people concede that, okay, yes, Jesus died, alright. Okay, so it wasn't a conspiracy. But we've all misunderstood the disciples. They didn't mean it to be literal. They didn't mean it to be real. They meant it more as a great myth. A legend. They were telling a story that had significant spiritual meaning, but, but nothing more. The myth theory that the resurrection story was over time embellished little by little until it became this huge resurrection story of, of a man, a, just an ordinary man who rose from the dead and did amazing and miraculous things. The problem with this and this one's very strongly believed, but the problem with this is that the gospel accounts are like no other myth story that's ever been written at any time. And especially not, not compared to any of the myth stories that existed at the time of the gospels and at the, in the time of the first century. They're just completely different stories, completely different characters, completely different events are happening. In addition, a myth takes a long time to develop. It takes years, and not years, but decades and decades, generations of people for a myth to develop. 
But the New Testament was written within the first generation of eyewitnesses. So that when Paul is writing his letters and he's saying, this happened, this really happened, you can check with so-and-so and so-and-so, and over 500 people that he appeared to at one time, and many of them are still alive, and you can check with them yourself. And they'll tell you exactly what happened. They'll tell you they saw Jesus. The myth, uh, the myth theory often goes like this, that there are multiple layers to the story. That there is a, there is a layer in the, in the story that is, that is true. That there's some truth there that there was a historical Jesus, that he did do this and that and, and the other thing. But there's also a, another layer su- superimposed on that. And that other layer is the myth of the Gospels. What, what's written in the Gospels is pure myth. Didn't really actually happen. The problem with this is that there's no evidence anywhere for that first layer. For that historical Jesus layer, except for what people have invented or what people have tried to pull out of the real Gospels and to say, well, we'll take that. That sounds like it might have happened. We can accept that. We can believe in that. But we can't believe in 90% of the rest of the Gospels. So there's really no, no evidence to support a, a historical Jesus layer to this myth. Think about this too. We, we saw in this, in this passage right here that the women are the ones who go to the tomb. That the women are the ones who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. Any myth that was written to try to convince people that it might be true or might want to be believed in surely wouldn't have included women as eyewitnesses since at that time they didn't allow women to testify in courts. They didn't allow their testimony. It just wasn't valid. Oh, so a couple of women saw this? Fine. Any men? No? Okay, well, we don't believe you. And that's just how it went at the time. That's just how the culture was. But the fact is that the women are witnesses all over the gospel accounts. If they were trying to write a myth, they would have left that out. The New Testament itself also claims not to be a myth. We have the letters where Peter says, we're not following cleverly devised myths and tales. No, this has really happened. This really happened. We saw it with our eyes. We experienced it. We touched it. It's true. The Gospels, in addition, were written by the disciples. And the written evidence is is trustworthy. Here's where a lot of people are going to argue with you. We can't really trust the Bible, though. Aren't there so many discrepancies? Wasn't it written and compiled so many years later? We can't really trust it, can we? But just think about a few things. There is far less documentary evidence for other ancient historical accounts, say the stories of Julius Caesar or the other emperors, or Alexander the Great, or any of those ancient stories and characters, far less evidence for them written down than for the biblical events themselves. We have more documentary evidence for the Bible than any other ancient story or document of any time. Then 
consider too that the other documents that you can find, they were written much, much later. 9th century, 10th century, 11th century, much later than the events that they're purporting. But the gospel accounts were written in the same century. And the, and the documentary evidence that we have is very old, going all the way back to within a generation of the apostles themselves. There are more copies of the biblical narratives, especially of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, than any other historical uh, source and any other historical story. There are more early surviving copies of the biblical narratives than any other histories. Over 6,000 manuscripts that make up the New Testament itself. Where does that leave us? If none of these things, if none of these theories really hold water, where does that leave us? It leaves us with one conclusion. Jesus died. Jesus rose. The tomb is empty. And Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. We can trust what the New Testament says. What we read a moment ago in Luke chapter 24, we can trust it. And what it says about the resurrection of Jesus. But the real question is, why does the resurrection matter? What difference does it make for us? Well, briefly, let me take you through some things. The resurrection is the first day of the new creation. Think about that. The first day of the new creation. Luke writes this, but on the first day of the week, normally we, we read that, and rightly so, we go, well, that's Sunday, right? Yes, it is Sunday. <laughs> that's right. It is Sunday. But, in the context of the Bible itself, in the context of the history of Israel, in the context of the Gospels, the first day is something new. There was a first day of creation, wasn't there? Let there be light. And there was light. And there was evening and morning. Uh, right? Evening and morning. The first day, right? There was a first day of creation. A second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth day. And on the seventh day, God rested. He completed His work. He enjoyed His work. But now we have a resurrection happening. We have a new first day. We have the first day of the rest of history is what we have. In fact, we have the first day of the last days. What happens with the resurrection is that it's the first day of the new creation. It's the beginning of what God is doing in history through Jesus and through the work of His church. It's the inauguration, in a sense, of God's kingdom breaking into the world. That dead men are now alive, but not just resuscitated, not just revived, but transformed. Transformed. So that we now are living between His resurrection and His second coming. The kingdom of God is now. And we're a part of it. And, and 
And Paul, Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God that the, the children of God already get to experience. The rest of creation is waiting for it. The rest of creation is waiting for the final consummation. For, for God to make everything new. Again. Finally. But His people are a part of it now. That's where we're at. That's what we're experiencing when we are in Christ and we are in His church. Well, the resurrection is also the fulfillment of promise. It's the fulfillment of promise. Note, look, look with me at verses 6 through 8. See what the angels said? The two men in dazzling apparel. Later on, we see them referred to as angels. We know they're angels. He says, remember how he told you. Jesus told you this was going to happen. Three times he predicted his arrest, his his death and His resurrection. And here it is happening. It's being fulfilled. It's a promise fulfilled. And not just what Jesus said, but God planned it. Here's a passage from Acts chapter 2 where the apostles are saying, this Jesus was delivered to up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God had a plan. And He brought it to completion in Jesus' death and resurrection. The Old Testament predicted it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered to you as first in importance, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Old Testament tells that it's going to happen and it happened. It's a fulfillment of promises because we saw in Numbers, didn't we? God fulfills His promises. He doesn't let us down. He's faithful. The resurrection is our victory over death. So if that's not enough, if it's not enough to just be part of the new creation, if it's not enough to be a fulfillment of promise, it is, the, it is our victory over death. Because Jesus died and rose again, conquering death, we know that death is not going to have victory over us. That's what, that's what Paul says in Romans 4. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, raised for our justification. Here's how John Calvin put it. By His death, sin was taken away. By His resurrection, righteousness was renewed and restored. For how could He by dying have freed us from death if He had yielded to its power? If He had stayed dead, how could He have freed us from the power of death? And if, how could He have obtained the victory for us if He had fallen in the contest? In other words, if death had defeated Him, how could we experience any victory either? We couldn't. That's what the resurrection does for us. It gives us victory over death. But it also is the source and power of our mission. The source and the power of our mission. Jesus didn't rise just to prove a point. He rose to establish His people on mission 
in the world. That's what he said. That's what he just said to his disciples after his resurrection. He said, "As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you on a mission." Well, that's what he meant. That's what that's what the language is. So I just added that on a mission part. But that's implied. I'm sending you. I was God sent me on a mission here. Now I'm sending you on a mission. Every single one of you. And so then he said, "Here, receive the Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, they'll be forgiven. If you." Withhold forgiveness, whew, that's a whole other message. From any, it is withheld. God gave them a commission. God gave them the power. God gave them the motivation to go out on mission. That's what the resurrection does for us. The resurrection is also the guarantee of our resurrection. The guarantee of our resurrection this is, this is one of the reasons the, resu- the resurrection is good news. Because death is not the end, right? It doesn't have victory. But what comes after that? What comes after death? Do we just kind of go into a disembodied state? Kind of go float around on some clouds? We go into heaven and we kind of do this thing. We're kind of spirits. Our souls go on living. No. He says that because Jesus rose from the dead and experienced a transformed new body, so will we. A completely transformed eternal future is in store for each of us. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. We are the first fruit, or excuse me, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have been, those who have died. If he's the first fruits, then we are the rest of the harvest. If He is going to be raised like that, we're right behind Him. That's what He says later in 1 Corinthians 15 when He says, I tell you a mystery. We'll all be changed in the moment in a twinkling of an eye. The dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed, transformed. We're not going to be floating around little disembodied spirits somewhere strumming on our harps. We're going to have real, physical, transformed bodies like Jesus' transformed resurrection body. Sometimes I think we miss that, folks. We, we need to look at that and recognize that that's our future. That's our eternal future. Well, finally, finally, the resurrection proves Jesus is who He said He is. Jesus is who He said He is. Listen to Jesus' own claim here. When he, was, when he was questioned in Mark chapter 14, the high priest asked Him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? The Son of God, in other words. And He said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am the Christ. That's His claim. That was His claim. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah then was vindicated in His resurrection. That He came to life, He rose from the dead, showing that He was exactly who He said He was. Listen to what else he said. Well, let me show you what Paul said in Romans first. 
He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord. Jesus claimed to be the I Am with the power to inaugurate the new kingdom to, to, through His own resurrection. We are invited into the story of Jesus to enter into His inaugurated kingdom. I think we have to think pretty carefully then about what that means. How we must live differently in this life. How do we live our lives? Do we live as if the resurrection really happened? Do we live as if the resurrection really matters to us day in and day out? Because for, for the disciples, it changed everything. It changed their entire worldview. They thought, well, Jesus has died. Well, we just, we'll go back to Galilee. We'll go back to our old jobs. All this, the three years of seminary was fine, but it obviously is not getting us anywhere. So let's go back to our old jobs. That's not how they responded. It changed them. And it changed the trajectory of their life. It changed how they viewed everything. I think we have to think about that too. Very carefully. And then we have to act decisively. N.T. Wright, who's a British New Testament scholar and bishop of the Anglican Church, pretty smart guy, he wrote this. Your task is to find the symbolic ways of doing things differently. The ways that, that actually, doing things that have, in, in ways that have meaning. Planting flags in hostile soil, difficult places. Setting up signposts that say there is a different way to be human. The way we live our lives, in other words, really matters. People are seeing it. People, are, people will know if we have been with Christ or not. Just like they knew when they talked to the disciples. Hmm, take note of this. These men have been with Christ. And, and look at the way their lives are now. And when people are puzzled at what you are doing, find ways, fresh ways, of telling the story of the return of the human race from its exile and use those stories as your explanation. He's talking about living in such a way that people see the story of God at work in our lives. Every day. And they're seeing it in us. And then being prepared to tell the story. Actually using words. <laughs> to tell the story. The good news of Jesus in ways that will make it clear that Jesus really is good news. That He is the answer to the brokenness in the world around us. How is God asking you to live differently in light of the resurrection? How should you live so that other people see the good news is, 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 is real in that person's life? Once you know how, do it. That's the challenge. And it, who do you know who needs to hear the message of the resurrection? Tell them. Where is their need who is in pain around you? People like that all over the place. We don't have to look far. We just have to acknowledge that they're actually there and, and stop stepping over them on our way to wherever else we're going. That's where Jesus wants us to go. To go to those people who are hurt, those people who are in need, 
those people who are in pain. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That means never die ultimately and forever. Do you believe this? Jesus asked that to a lady who was mourning the death of her brother. But he's actually saying that to each and every one of us too. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that if you believe in him, that even if you do die, and most of us will unless Jesus comes again before that happens, that when we die, it won't be the end? Yet, even yet, we will actually live? That's the crux of the resurrection story. Not that we have all of the questions answered or we can answer every question that other people have. Not that every doubt is removed, but that we come to Him and we believe. He is risen. It's a message of the resurrection. A message of Easter. He's risen. He is risen. Do you believe? Have you placed your faith in Him? Will you let Him be your King? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, help us to respond as you would have us to respond. Even now, I, I know that, um, and I know your spirit is working, probably in ways that I could never imagine at this point. Father, don't let us go from here without responding to you in the way that you have called us to respond. And we love you, give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen. Would you stand with me? The music is going to play and we're going to sing a song. Uh, you may need to just pray or you may want to come forward. Maybe there's a decision that you want to make. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a response that you need to make. Maybe, maybe the, 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 the first and only and the most important response you could make is, well, actually, I, I need to believe. Um, I need help in knowing how to put my faith in Jesus. Um, come forward and do that. You can't make a more important decision with your life than that. Beyond that, what's God asking you to do? I'm here to, to listen and to pray with you if you want to come forward.
thank you for responding in worship in whatever way that God is calling you. Um, so we'll go from here, and I pray that we will go out of here having a, having a grasp of what the resurrection really means to us, that, that he's created us to be a, a people on mission for him, that he's given us uh, a victory over death, that he's secured our future. Thank you.